Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Steph and I am your host, and this is the last episode of season three of Fertility Friendly Food. It's the last episode of 2022. I cannot believe how quickly this year has flown by. This is our 82nd episode. We're going to crack 100 episodes next year. The podcast is kicking goals. We're finding more and more listeners every single month, finding our podcast, tuning in, learning about fertility and preconception health and reproductive health. It's incredible. So if you have joined us in 2022, thank you. And if you're a long-time listener, thank you as well. And may I ask a small festive favor? If you're a long-time listener of the podcast, or even if you've just picked up a couple of episodes and you've loved them, Please take five seconds, literally five seconds, and hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're feeling extra generous in the festive spirit, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. What these ratings and reviews do is they actually index the podcast to be reached to more people and also to chart higher in the charts. Now, the charts seem like a bit, bit of an egotistical measurement, and to a degree they are. But if you appear in the top 10 or 20 podcasts for your category, you are more likely to attract new listeners who can then find us and get all this good stuff too. So if you're feeling generous, thank you. I appreciate you. Please go and leave us a five-star rating and review. And I can't wait to read them. Now, today's episode in finale fashion is a Q&A. And so I popped a Q&A box up on Instagram and I thought I would answer some of your questions. Now, these questions span a variety of different topics from business to fertility, nutrition and more. So I'm excited to get stuck into them. And some of these I have covered before. So I will be referring you to episodes in the show notes for more detail on some of them. But I thought we could get the party started. First question is a business category one. What would you tell yourself in the beginner stages of business? In the beginning stages of my business, what would I tell myself? I mean, once you've decided to start and you've actually pressed go, I think just that your tenacity and your grit and your diligence in showing up every day, taking consistent, imperfect action You've got to believe that that is going to pay off at some point. And I think it is so hard in your beginner days of business because, you know, you're kind of going in blind. You don't have any historical data to compare to within yourself of what it could look like. And you don't know what opportunities and how 
the environment that we operate in as businesses is going to play out. And so naturally, you can feel a lot of uncertainty. And I think as well on social media, we do compare ourselves quite a lot, including in business. And I do think that that can be a real detriment. I know that many student dietitians, new graduate dietitians, even experienced dietitians who are transitioning into business follow us on Instagram, which is at the underscore dietologist if you're not following already. And often I get DMs of like, my goodness, like, how do you do all this? How is it that you've gotten to this point in your business that you're able to put out this much content or see this many clients or have these kinds of client outcomes or whatever it is, whatever you're comparing to, have this kind of website or have this kind of podcast or whatever it is. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the what is. The thing is that I often find is people compare their chapter one or chapter two or chapter three of business to somebody's chapter 45. And so, you know, I am very lucky that I have an incredible team that I have built that can help support all the operations of the business. And we're still not done growing yet, but it does make a big difference. Not everything that you see is written by me. It's all approved by me, but it's not all written by me. And that's an important reality of, you know, a content-driven type of business. So I guess reduce your comparison, have belief in your vision, and know when to seek help. A lot of people, when they get started early in business, feel like, oh, it's too soon to seek help or it's too expensive to seek help in business. But honestly, the cost of your time is so high that it is better to get as many shortcuts and avoid as many errors as possible. Now, you will not avoid all errors in business. It's impossible. And something that I said to myself in the early days of business was fail fast. If you're going to fail, do it fast. Because failing slowly and not changing quick enough will be the death of your business for sure. Not to sound too morbid, but truly it is a motto that I have always and continue to live by is if something's going to flop, let it flop quick and move along. And there's several times even I can think just this year where we've launched things and they've been a flop and that's cool. We just move on. I do find one of the biggest challenges is there's a mismatch between what people say that they want. Like if you survey your audience and say, hey, you know, if you could have the perfect experience with XYZ service, what would this look like? And you could design it and market it, brand it and do a beautiful job. And nobody actually gets their credit card out and puts in their digits and buys your thing. And it happens. And it just goes to show that people sometimes can want something, but are they willing to pay a price for it is a different question altogether. So know your audience, get to know your audience very well. And yeah, trust your gut, have your vision and avoid comparisonitis and just believe that hard work pays off. There's a great quote that I heard recently, which is, Hard work works harder than talent when talent isn't working hard or something like that. You don't necessarily need to be super talented in business to have a successful business, but you do need to work hard. So I'll leave it with that one with my butchered quote. All right, next question. How does insulin resistance impact fertility? Best ways to manage if trying to conceive. 
Great question. So I have an entire podcast episode all about insulin resistance that I would encourage you to go and check out. I've left the link in the show notes below for you. So go and check that one out. It goes into more detail about what is insulin resistance and how to manage it using diet. Now, with insulin resistance, the long and short of it is is your body is not able to really process carbohydrates as optimally anymore. And as a result, it means that there is a sluggishness in glucose, which is a a unit of the carbohydrate, cannot really enter the cell as efficiently as it once did, meaning it's either stuck in the bloodstream for too long or your blood levels of insulin are starting to rise. Now, once you become hyperinsulinemic or high levels of fasting insulin or high levels of insulin, that can have a knock-on effect to your fertility health. It can interfere with ovarian function. It can interfere with the development of placenta. And of course, insulin resistance does increase your risk of developing gestational diabetes in your pregnancy, which has its own host of things to be concerned about. So it is certainly something that you want to be focusing on in your preconception preparation. And people are often shocked to find out that they are in fact insulin resistant when they come to see us and it's part of our standard set of blood tests that we request for clients. And it's something that sometimes has no real symptoms at all. You may feel still hungry after meals. You may have trouble shifting weight. You may feel a bit moody or hangry when you do get a little bit hungry, but it seems disproportionate to how hungry you really are. You can feel quite fatigued and tired, or you may have no symptoms at all, particularly if it's quite mild insulin resistance. So it's really important that you get on top of managing this. So management is multifactorial. You are going to need to work with a dietitian one-on-one because everybody's carbohydrate amounts at main meals and snacks is going to vary depending on your lifestyle, your activity levels, your blood work, how you respond to certain foods. I mean, there are so, so many individual factors, but the first good thing to do is to try to switch to as many unrefined whole food forms of carbohydrates. So instead of buying white bread, buy a multigrain wholemeal bread or rye bread. Instead of having jasmine rice, have basmati or black or brown basmati rice. Those are much slower release in the bloodstream. Try focusing on sweet potato and corn and peas as your carbohydrate sources and as well as your fruit and your dairy foods and try not to bunch them all into one meal. So you don't want to have a breakfast of two boiled eggs, a lunch of a chicken salad, and then go home starving and binge eat a whole pizza and two things of garlic bread, because that is going to disproportionately mess with how much insulin your body needs to produce throughout the day. So try and keep your carbohydrates spread out across the day. Make sure you're getting enough sleep at night. That's incredibly important for insulin levels. If you don't get enough sleep or you're having interrupted sleep, you will wake up with higher fasting insulin levels and higher appetite hormones. You will eat more and you won't be using it as effectively. The other thing to be aware of is your exercise. Exercise is really, 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 really important for insulin resistance because it's the only thing that makes your cells a bit more sensitive to insulin besides obviously medications and some supplements. So making sure that you're moving your body regularly. If you're struggling, just start with 10-minute walks after your main meals. That will really help with your blood sugar regulation post-meals. Other things to consider 
include certain types of supplements can be helpful. Consult your healthcare provider. Making sure your vitamin D status is in tip-top shape. People with insulin resistance are far more likely to be vitamin D deficient and it's an important part of insulin regulation. Also, your omega-3 status should be optimized. Cinnamon might be helpful for blood glucose regulation. So if you can incorporate quarter teaspoon of cinnamon each day, that's probably a good move too. There is way more detail in the podcast. Go over and check it out. And I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you, get your blood work done and come in and book in and see us to optimize your ovulation, your egg quality, your insulin resistance and improve the chances of you conceiving and reducing your risk of pregnancy-related complications like gestational diabetes. There's no guarantee, but you want to know that you've done all that you could before you get there. All right, next question. Myth to eat warm food only when doing FET, frozen embryo transfer, to help baby stick. I heart smoothies for brekkie. Okay, this concept that we can't eat any cold foods when trying to get pregnant or particularly when doing an embryo transfer, which is relevant to those of you doing IVF. I don't want to say it's a myth because I feel like it's disrespectful, but in Chinese medicine, there is a lot about warm and cool and the energies and temperature is really, really, really important. And that's part of the Eastern medicine methodology. And and we've had a Chinese medicine practitioner and acupuncturist, Amanda Waldick from Angie Acupuncture, on the podcast talking about Chinese medicine. And there is certainly some validity to it and some evidence behind it. However, I personally do not recommend avoiding all cold foods and eating only hot foods when undergoing an embryo transfer or trying to conceive in general. Because in my opinion, if it were the cold that was stopping people getting pregnant, then we would have people not being able to get pregnant in cold climate countries like Iceland or I just think of Eskimos, for example. It's probably a terrible example. But think about cool climate countries where it's snowing or it's cold for a lot of the year. You know, we need to be logical in the way that we think about these things. So if you love a smoothie for breakfast and it's helping you get your fruit and veg in, By all means, by my account, go right on ahead. There is nothing to stop you from my perspective. If you're really worried about it and you want to do it and have soup all day long, you are more than welcome to. Next question. I'm doing some live questions now. (laughs) Healthiest type of cheese. Okay, before I talk about cheese, we need to stop this mentality of what is the best blah? What is the healthiest blah? bread, cheese, yogurt, cereal, it doesn't really matter because even if it is the healthiest, quote unquote, and I'm doing little air quotes here, on paper, if you don't like it and it doesn't meet your preferences, who cares? At the end of the day, yes, we eat for health and nutrition and to meet our you know, physical nutrient requirements, but we eat for so many more reasons than this. We eat to have memories, cultural connection. We eat so sometimes for the flavor, for comfort. And obviously some people see it as this very black and white thinking of that we only eat for our health and nutrition and we're like fueling a tank in a car, but humans are way more complex than that. So look, At the end of the day, what does cheese have to offer as a food to us nutritionally? It offers protein, it offers fat, 
typically saturated fats, which we want to minimize in general, a little bit here and there from our whole foods like cheese and extra virgin olive oil and lean cuts of uh, meat if you eat meat is fine, but we don't want to go overboard with the saturated fats. It offers calcium, which is a really important nutrient, especially for females who are quite dairy avoidant in other parts of their worlds. And we know most of us in that 19 to 50 year old age category are not meeting our calcium requirements. And cheese is a big source of sodium salt in our diet as well. And too much salt can be a problem as well. So cheese really is typically a food associated with adding flavor to a meal and or being a social engagement food. Like cheese has become the social food of all social foods. So I really think that the healthiest type of cheese is the one that you feel satisfied with on a smaller portion. Because sometimes choosing the lowest fat Gilesburg cheese, which is probably, you know, healthy defined by what? If you're looking for low calorie, sure. But I mean, that's the thing. Why are we synonymizing healthiest with low calorie? Like, it's just like, where do you draw the line? I don't have specific recommendations for types of cheese to my clients. I tell them to eat what type of cheese they like. I love feta and halloumi because I'm Greek and I will never, ever not eat those pretty much most days of the week. They are high in salt, but I do not care. It's about what you like. If you like Swiss cheeses, eat Swiss cheeses. If you like a tasty cheddar type of cheese, eat a tasty cheddar type of cheese. Whatever it is, stick to a 20 to 40 gram portion. You know, just have one serving a day and you will be fine. I don't think we need to overthink it. There are certainly some cheeses that offer a little bit more than others. For example, uh, a low-fat cottage cheese offers quite a high amount of protein, for example. So if you're looking for a higher protein topping to, say, crackers for a snack, cottage cheese might be the go, for example. So that's my convoluted answer to healthiest type of cheese. The last question before we wrap up. My goodness, it's almost been 20 minutes of me answering your questions. I didn't even answer that many is how does one increase vitamin D levels? Sun and prenatals plus extra vitamin D still low. All right. I have had this discussion at time of recording multiple times this week with clients. Clients come often at this time of the year in Australia where we're about to enter summer, obviously different being in the Southern Hemisphere versus the Northern Hemisphere. And they are shocked about how low their vitamin D levels are. So when we're talking about vitamin D for preconception, fertility, pregnancy, health, our goal is 75 to 100 nanomole per liter. Now, each blood workplace, depending on where you are in the world, will have a slightly different unit. But 75 to 100 nanomoles is the goal. Deficiency in Australia, they'll say, is less than 50 and you know, more, more significant deficiencies under 30 and under 20, for example. So if you have a job where you are inside most of the day or your skin is covered or you have more melanin or pigment in your skin or perhaps you have a medical condition, which means that you may just be more at risk of vitamin D deficiency, for example, you may need to make a concerted effort. Now, certainly we can achieve more vitamin D by exposing our skin, our bare skin to the sun. You can wear SPF and still make vitamin D. So you can still wear your sunscreen and make vitamin D via the skin. 
Some people just not very good at that process, for example. Some people try to boost it through their diet. So things like sardines, egg yolks, vitamin D, irradiated mushrooms. So putting your mushrooms in the sun, they'll make a bit of vitamin D. And even if you cook them, you'll still be able to get some vitamin D out of them. So certainly you can include your dietary sources too, but look, they have a minuscule impact in comparison to supplements and skin exposure. My questions would be if you were a client, which you're not, but these are the types of questions that I would ask. How long have you been taking them for? What was your baseline level? And what is your current dosage and form of vitamin D supplementation? And are you taking it with food that contains fat? Vitamin D is a fat-soluble nutrient. It requires fat in your diet to absorb. So it's not the best one to take in the morning because most people's breakfasts are not very high in fat. So it's probably best to take it after lunch or dinner. Don't worry, it won't interact with your sleep. To maximize absorption, reevaluate the dosage. And there are some practitioner vitamins that have slightly different forms of vitamin D that can increase your levels quite quickly and more efficiently than what you can find in the retail space, which is decently new to me, but is very cool. So most on the market are cholecalciferol, which is vitamin D3. You can get a slightly different form called calcifidiol, and calcifidiol has some research to show that it can rapidly improve your vitamin D status in as little as a few weeks, where usually vitamin D status takes months to improve if there's a significant deficiency. Your practitioner should give you a tailored supplement regime and usually weans down as time goes on and a time frame to retest as well so you can see if it's working or not. Some people at baseline just have a much higher requirement for vitamin D to maintain their levels. The RDI or the recommended dietary intake, daily intake, is a thousand international units per day, which is what's in most stock standard prenatal, sometimes a lot less. So that's your maintenance amount. But I have seen clients in the past where they need two, three, or even 4,000 international units in the past just to maintain a good level once it's improved. So sometimes it's just an underestimate of how much your body is able to utilize, but making sure you're taking it with a fat rich meal would be my first port of call. And speaking with your practitioner about options would probably be my tips there. We do offer express prenatal supplement consults, 30-minute sessions where we can review your prenatal and do all your vitamin D dosing, iron, anything else that you need, including the brands, when to take it and when to retest as well. So we can do all that for you in just 30 minutes on Zoom. So if you're interested, don't forget to get that booked in. All right, everyone, I have answered probably five or six questions, I'm hoping, as as we round out season three of Fertility Friendly Food and the last episode for 2022. Thank you so, so much for giving me your time and your ears over the past year or, or so, however long you've been listening. But certainly for 2022, I'm so grateful to each and every one of you who tunes in each week. And I would love to hear from you. Connect with us on Instagram at the underscore dietologist. Share this episode with a family member, friend, cousin. You know somebody who would benefit from this episode. And don't forget that five-star rating and review, literally five seconds of your life. It'll help us 
immensely and it will give us a nice beautiful reminder as to why we put so much time and energy into these episodes for you as we head into season four. Now season four will be back in I'm going to say around March 2023, but we are launching a new format. So I will be talking about that more over on my socials. So please make sure you're following us on Instagram so you don't miss out. We're going to be doing regular Q&As in each episode and taking listener questions. So I'm super, super pumped to be doing that and changing it up and having more connection and interaction with you all. So keen, keen bean for season four. For those of you who celebrate the holiday season, I hope you stay safe, happy and well over the festivities. Enjoy some time with your family and friends and sending you all baby dust for those who are trying to conceive at the moment. I know this can be such a challenging and trying time of the year if you're not pregnant and you hope you would have been. I see you and I'm sending you so, so much love. All right. I will catch you in 2023, everyone. Bye.